about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. So the first reading today is from Isaiah 8, uh, as you can see, verses 11 to 18. The Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty, who dwells on Mount Zion. So this is 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing for whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you are, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. Thank you very much. If you've got that open in front of you, uh, let's keep uh, 1 Peter 3 open in front of us and then uh, let's pray. Should we pray? Let's pray. Uh, Our dear Father, we uh, long to hear from you, so we pray that by your Spirit now uh, we would hear your clear word. Talk to us now, we ask, in the depths of our being. Uh, Confront us with who you are, with your grace and your truth. Show us again who you are in the face of Jesus. Show us again who we are in the face of Jesus. 
that we might be changed, that we might be new, that we might truly go in peace from this place to love and serve the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Great. Well, uh, if we haven't met before, my name is uh, Glenn Scrivener, and uh, I uh, have lived half my life in Australia, half my life in the UK, so I'm a little bit of a mongrel, and uh, so is my accent, so apologies about that. Um, But uh, my job really is as an evangelist. That's uh, kind of on my business card, and uh, it's a scary name to bandy about, evangelist. Um, I'm not sure who is more afraid of evangelists, non-Christians or Christians. Uh, Non-Christians think of the word tele-evangelist, and there's a terrifying thought, isn't it? A tele-evangelist. And uh, and Christians kind of think of evangelists as these adrenaline junkies who are just these alpha male types usually who maybe go door-to-door selling insurance or door-to-door selling Jesus or whatever it is. They just tend to have the the, the gift of the gab and they have their set patter and uh, that's tends to be how people think of an evangelist. But we thought yesterday, if you were here, uh, about what an evangelist really looks like. And and I got people here to think about uh, people who had helped them trust in Jesus in their lives. And uh, it was very interesting at that stage, as people started to narrate their stories of how they came to Christ and the people who were so significant in them trusting in Jesus. Uh, The descriptions of those people were so different from the caricature. I wonder who it is in your life who you would point to and say, yeah, that person was really significant. And I wonder what it was about that person who helped you to trust in Jesus. I think the reality of the people who've actually helped us to trust in Jesus can help us to be released from caricatures about what an evangelist really is. And it might start to make us think, well, maybe I've got a role in God's great mission to the nations. Maybe if God used that person in my life, he could use me in someone else's life. So I've thought about uh, what an evangelist looks like. Uh, I wonder if you could picture in your mind now what a pastor looks like. Someone who's incredibly pastoral. Uh, What are sort of the words and images and adjectives and phrases you'd use to describe someone who's really pastoral? Um, I think at that stage, people start to think of Images of someone with their head sort of constantly cocked to about 90 degrees, sort of smiling and nodding and saying, and how did that make you feel? And putting the kettle on and wearing paisley, mainly paisley, all the way around. You know, that that tends to be the the pastoral person. And we tend to think of a pastoral person as someone totally different from an evangelist, don't we? We tend to think you probably need a pastoral visitation once you've had an evangelist's visitation, just to recover from the blow and, and... we tend to think these wildly different kind of personalities, don't we? Which is odd, because in the Bible, an evangelist just means a teller of good news, right? That's what the word evangelist means, a teller of good news. And a pastor literally means a shepherd, which, you know, in the first century, a shepherd was a serious kind of guy who would, you know, stand in the way of wolves and beat them off and, you know, a forehead like flint. And, and they were tough characters, pastors, shepherds. So it's interesting, in the, in the Bible, a shepherd is the kind of guy who could beat up a wolf, right? And an evangelist is a teller of good news. Rejoice, right? But in our modern understanding, the, the, the pastor is constantly the sort of the gentle soul, and the, and the evangelist is the angular type. Uh, and actually, what I want to show us from 1 Peter here is that evangelism and pastoral care is basically the same thing. It really is. 
Evangelism is just pastoring non-Christians. And pastoral care is just evangelizing Christians. It's literally, it's, it's basically the same thing. It's just the audience that changes. Evangelism is pastoring non-Christians. And pastoral care is evangelizing Christians. It's just telling the gospel to different kinds of people in different stages of life. And I think the person that really teaches us this from the Bible is Peter. Because he's a guy who goes on a journey. Um, if you sort of are introduced to Peter in the Gospels, the first place you find him is in a fishing boat, and there he is, and uh, Jesus gives the miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter 5, and Peter recognizes something of who Jesus is and says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, and, and, and Jesus says, I will make you a fisher of men. And, and maybe that's what we think of when we think of an evangelist. We think of a, a fisher of men. And, uh, and Peter... I imagine he went off to a, a local Christian bookshop and picked up some paperbacks on the subject of evangelism uh, because he then kind of runs the playbook, just play by play. He just sort of shoots his mouth off. He is this very angular kind of a guy, a motor mouth, and uh, yeah, he runs his mouth before thinking and gets himself into all sorts of trouble, doesn't he, in the, in the Gospels, to the point where you get to the, the, the night before Jesus dies and, and there is Peter at the evangelist conference and he's giving the, 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 the address to all the other guys and he's, he's geeing them up, isn't he? And he says, even if everyone else falls away from you, Jesus, I never will. And he's such a great leader in evangelistic zeal that all the other people in the upper room agree to him and say, yeah, we will follow you, Peter, in the way that you follow Jesus. And, of course, Jesus has to take him down a peg or two, doesn't he? Jesus says, oh, you, you will die for me, Peter. Really? That, that's the way around it's going to be? You, you will die for me? Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And, and the very same zeal, and you could call it evangelistic zeal, but it's a very fleshly kind of evangelistic zeal. The very same zeal that made Peter say he was iron for Jesus actually made Peter crumble before the servant girl, even before daybreak. Actually, that kind of evangelist needed to die, needed to be crucified with Christ. And then what was raised up on the far side of the cross, you read about in John chapter 21, is a pastoral evangelist. Have you noticed that Peter starts his life as a fisherman? And then Jesus confronts him, and there's another miraculous catch of fish in John chapter 21. And, and suddenly, Peter is reconstituted as a leader of God's people, and, and now he's a very different kind of leader. He's a chastened leader. He knows his sin, and he knows the forgiveness of Christ. And Jesus then says to him, Now, Peter, will you feed my lambs? Will you take care of my lambs? Will you feed my sheep? Now he's a pastor. Now he's a shepherd. Of course, he doesn't stop being evangelistic. He's incredibly evangelistic. You know, we... Turn the page, a couple of pages, and, and Peter's giving one of the great evangelistic addresses of the whole scriptures. So Peter is definitely an evangelist, but it, it, it's taken a journey for him to go from being this, this angular motor mouth to being a pastoral fisher of men. And by the time we get to one Peter, I think he's really learned his lessons about how it is that evangelism is really just pastoring people. 1 Peter chapter 1, if you want to uh, go to the beginning of the letter, here, here he addresses a whole bunch of people, and here is his mission team, and this is his mission strategy. And it's, it's not this whiz-bang, polished kind of engine. 
What is it? 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, who are strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, that would be northern Turkey today, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of, get the Trinity here, God the Father, through the sanctifying work of God the Spirit, for obedience to God the Son, Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. So you've got two different perspectives on God's mission team. From an earthly perspective, they are scattered refugees who have had to flee where they're they're from, just picking up whatever they can carry in their hands, and and now they live in, in a strange place, and they are totally at the bottom of the heap in this new society. Refugees scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's the, that's the earthly perspective, but the divine perspective, the heavenly perspective, is that they are gripped by the triune God. They are choice in the eyes of God the Father. They are set apart as special, as holy, by the Spirit. And they are owned and cleansed by Jesus Christ. And so Peter addresses them and, and wants them to remember this heavenly reality. And that's, that's so important on mission. We need to know who we are before we're told what to do. We must know who we are before we are to go out into the world. Otherwise, we're just going to figure that we are simply aliens, simply refugees in this world. We will simply think of there's the big bad world out there and we Christians, we are you know, not in step with the world. We're on the wrong side of history, right? And that will be the kind of the feeling that we get. And we'll get this kind of persecution complex. You know, Christians can so often get a persecution complex. Because Jesus did say that persecution will be our context. It will be our context, but it should never be our complex, right? Isaiah 8, our Old Testament reading, said that, you know, don't call conspiracy what everyone else calls conspiracy. Don't fear what everyone else fears. You, you might be an alien and a stranger in this world, but you are gripped by the triune God. And so he just pronounces this, this benediction over them from verse 3. I love, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And on he goes in this, this, this wonderful cascading blessing that he offers to God's people. Before he ever sends them out on mission, he tells them who they are. And what we need to know as we go public with our faith is is not so much that we are a bedraggled, besieged minority in a culture that's stepping away from godly morality, right? That, that, That can tend to be the way we think of ourselves. We think of ourselves as scattered aliens and strangers in the world. And Peter goes to great lengths to say, no, you you really need to get this identity in Christ bedded down into into your heart. You you need to step out into the world knowing exactly who you are. You are gripped by the triune God. You are blessed in Jesus. So praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have this new birth into a living hope. And then then Peter tells them who they are in chapter 2. These famous verses from verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Stunning. It's, it's, you are the special stuff of God. The special stuff. You know, I gave a youth talk last year to a whole bunch of teenagers, and I, and I said, are, are there any girls here who might have a special box? Maybe it's, you know, sparkly, and it, and it contains letters, and it's got things in it that, you know, 
you would not want anyone else to have. Do you, do you have such a special? And, and a few sort of girls sheepishly said, yeah, yeah, they did. And, and I said, and what if your brother stole such a box? What, what would happen? And this one girl just bowled his brass said, I would kill him. You know, and I really believed her. You know, I would kill him. It's my special stuff, right? You know, and this, this is who Christians are to God the Father has sanctified you by the Spirit, set you apart as special, and brought you to His Son such that you are loved with the very love that the Father has for Jesus. You are His special stuff. You really are. You're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a a holy nation. You're people who belong to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Because we're a priesthood, right? That, that's who the church is. That's our identity. We're a priesthood. And welcome to church. Hello. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> Wonderful. And, and off he goes. Go in peace. <laughs> to love and serve the Lord. <laughs> does, this, does this usually happen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it always happens. <laughs> I thought it was just me. No, okay. <laughs> Yeah, me and St. Francis, yeah, that's right, bless. Go into all creation, yeah. But here, you know, where was I? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> they were royal priesthood, thank you. We are this royal priesthood. You know, th- think about the priesthood of the Old Testament. You know, th- there were these Levites, weren't there? And they, their job was to be a priesthood. And there was one nation, one, one tribe out of the twelve, and their job was to kind of be go-betweens, to bring God to the people and the people to God. But it would be a very strange priesthood, wouldn't it, if they decided, hey, it's great being Levites, don't you reckon? Let's, let's all go off on holiday together, and we'll, let's, we'll just have a commune, just us, just the Levites. Bill, you can cook, and you know, I'll, I'll do the cleaning, and it'll just be us. No more of those other 12 tribes. Who, who, who can be bothered with the other 11? We're the truly godly ones, right? Um, is that a very Levitical thing to do? <laughs> Is that a very priestly thing to do? At that stage, they have stopped being who they are. If they decide to go off into their little priestly ghetto, they are no longer priestly. They are no longer who they are. And if the church hives off from the rest of society and decides to be the church for the church's own sake, we have stopped being the church. You can't be a priestly nation that is concerned only for itself. We have to exist for the nations. That's what a priestly nation is all about, existing for the nations to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so Peter really grips them with this heavenly reality. And then he says, look, I know that the earthly reality is really difficult. And so he starts talking about the difficulties. Chapter 2, verse 13, he starts talking about the authorities, the government. It might be against you. But he basically says to them, look, just suffer well and cling to Christ, will you? Suffer well and cling to Christ. That's, that's his great advice throughout the whole letter. And then from verse 18, he starts talking about difficult workplace scenarios. You could phrase it like that, I guess, to contextualize. Slaves and masters, difficult workplace scenarios. And, and again, his advice is exactly the same. Suffer well and cling to Christ. And from chapter 3, verse 1, he starts talking about difficult family situations, difficult marriages. And, What's his advice? Again, he says, suffer well and cling to Christ. And in that context, he then comes to chapter 3, verse 15. And and this is the most famous verse on personal evangelism. This This is kind of it. 
if, if you want to find a verse, you put all your eggs into this basket, okay? Because this, this is the one that tells you that you're meant to be sharing your faith on a one-to-one basis. But notice how it works from verse 15. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That's where it begins. And it's what Peter has been doing, like from the outset of the letter. I know you're a bedraggled minority. I know it's tough. I know you're scattered. I know you've got difficult government situations, different workplace, difficult workplace situations. I know you've got difficult family situations. I know that. But in your heart, set apart Christ as holy. Just as God has set you apart as holy by his spirit, so by his spirit, set Jesus apart in your heart as your special stuff, as, as the thing that you just, you know, if, if there was a fire, that's the one thing you go into your house to get. That's the special stuff, right? And who is Jesus? He is, he is the one we love. And you know what? You know, naturally in the morning when I wake up and I stare at my Bible on my nightstand and my Bible stares back at me, you know, it's not natural. I don't naturally set apart Christ as holy in my heart. I don't naturally wake up with a, a warm, fuzzy feeling about God. None of us do. We're, we're all in the flesh, aren't we? And our default setting as we wake up in the morning, my default setting is to think that God's basically a monster and somehow I need to get into his good books. That's, that's pretty much my default setting. And pretty much my, my then default answer to that is, I can't be bothered with that. And on I go into, the, in, into my day. You know, that's my default setting. And Peter says, no, no. You want to go public with Christ? Start by setting apart Christ in your hearts as holy. You know, I was reflecting, watching the, the, the World Cup last night, and uh, England were playing Sweden, and they actually won. They're actually in a World Cup semifinal. They don't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> um, it's amazing just following on social media that, it's, it's also kind of nerve-wracking because there's a lot of people who believe now. There's a lot of people who really think England are going to win the World Cup and it's just going to be such a tremendous disappointment to them all. <laughs> and it's, just, it's been interesting to me. I've spent more than 20 years in the UK and yet I just can't bring myself to support them. I just, I just can't. The, the, the identity formation that happened in the first 15 years of my life has meant that I support anyone but England. You know, it's just, there's, there's just been this sort of, this constant liturgical kind of formation of my character that, that means, you know, I am an alien and a stranger in the UK, and I, I continue to renew my Australian passport, even though Australia lose at everything right now. We're losing at everything, and yet I fly the flag. Why do I fly the flag? Because there's, there's got to be this, this grounding, this, this embedded formation, this, this sense of identity, who you are. And isn't it interesting that in the realm of sport, we don't mind wearing the Wallabies jersey even when we get walloped, right? We don't mind doing that if we know who we are, right? And I think it's the same here. Like, like if we're going to go public with our Christian faith, I think we need, to, we need to set apart in our hearts as holy the Lord Jesus and just, just recognize, yeah, I'm a Jesus guy. I'm on Team Jesus. I don't, I don't care what's happening out there in the culture. You know, Team Jesus might be seen to be losing out there in the culture, but... I'll be team Jesus till I die, you know, died in the wall. And that, that begins, that begins in the morning when that Bible is staring at me and I'm staring at that Bible. And of course, I fear that when I open the Bible, I'm just going to receive a lecture. 
Actually, the truth is, when I open the Bible, I receive Christ himself, the gift of the Father, given to me by the Spirit, and I'm reminded I am as loved by the Father as Jesus Christ is himself. And I set apart Christ in my heart as holy, and out I go into my day, and then all of a sudden, because I've set apart Christ as Lord, I'm, I'm prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Here is an evangelistic encounter, a one-to-one evangelistic encounter. Who initiates this encounter? It's interesting. It's the, it's the non-Christian, isn't it? It's actually initiating this encounter. And why are they initiating this encounter? Well, because they've seen in me a hope that doesn't have any earthly explanation. It's a case of the, the, the watching world looks on and they see that, look, the government authorities are against you. You've got a difficult workplace situation. You've got a difficult marriage. How are you still standing? How do you still put one foot in front of the other? What's, what's going on with all that? And the answer that you give at that moment is basically to say, I don't know. Somehow Jesus has got me through. That, that, in context, that's what 1 Peter 3.15 is all about. In context, the answer that we give is not, it's not a raft of philosophical arguments. It's literally a bedraggled mob of strangers, refugees, aliens in the world who are clinging on by their fingernails, but they've learnt how to suffer well and cling to Christ. And when people ask them about it, they don't give a bunch of philosophical arguments because the person is just asking them, how are you still standing after the year that you just had? How are you still standing after that family breakdown? How are you still standing after you lost your job? How are you still standing after your business just went belly up? How are you still standing after you went through all those rafts of tests and then the operations? How are you still standing? And and the answer is, I don't know, but Jesus got me through. Yesterday we were thinking about the phrase, uh, I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. I actually think that's the heart of evangelism. It really is the heart of evangelism. I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. So often in evangelism training, I get asked to prepare people to tell their testimonies as something that you do to, sh- to share your faith. You tell your Christian story and, you, and uh, you use the kind of the BHA kind of before, how and after, and, and you, you, kind of, you, you kind of have this, you narrate a spiritual journey in which you were in darkness and you saw the lights and you tell the story. Um, but of course... If you've grown up in a Christian home, it it, it becomes quite difficult, doesn't it? I don't know if you have grown up in a Christian home and you've never known a time when you haven't trusted in Jesus. You have to then invent, you know, your your wilderness years when you were five years old and, you know, really wandered from the Lord, just coloring outside the lines and everything. (laughs) You feel the pressure to narrate this journey in which preferably you're on skid row and you're, you know... Suddenly you see the light and you get transformed from a bank robber into a, you know. But I I don't really tell people to do that. But I do tell people, look, I I don't think a lot of people are that interested in you narrating a spiritual journey for yourself. But they are really, really interested in learning how you've gotten through difficult times in your life. Because everyone has to get through difficult times in their lives. Everyone does. And what they really want to know is, is when the rubber hits the road, how does Jesus help you? How does he help you in the family breakdown? How does he felt, help you when you're walking through with depression? How does, he, how does he help you with all those mental health struggles? How does he help you in these situations? 
Like, I couldn't have gotten through without Jesus. And then at that point, you know what you're doing? You having been pastored through the valley of the shadow of death, you are suddenly offering pastoral care to your friends who might be walking through the valley of the shadow. And you're saying, there is a good shepherd, you know. And that good shepherd is so necessary, so needed, because out there in the world, what is the hope? The, the hope that is within us is immortal glory. <laughs> the hope that is within us is the renewal of all things. The hope that is out there in the world is nothing. It is nothing, I tell you. The world will tell you that we are biological survival machines, clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. Is there... But at least there's a new flavored latte from Starbucks, so that's nice, you know. And we're renovating the kitchen, so that's something to look forward to. Is that, is that a hope? All the while we are biological survival machines clinging to an insignificant rock, hurtling through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. <laughs> Peter says, no, Christians, we have an evident hope. An evident hope that there is a shepherd who has walked us through and will continue to walk us through the darkest valley. And there is feasting joy at the end. There is a future, there is hope, there is immortal embodied glory that just as Jesus has risen from the dead, he will raise us with him and raise the whole cosmos to renew it forever. We have such a hope. And that's the hope that gets you through the dark times. You know, when dark times hit, we, we, we often think dark times are kind of a speed bump on the way to our evangelistic goal. And listen, dark times in your life will be very fruitful evangelistically. It won't feel nice. But as you are comforted in your affliction, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you will learn how to comfort others in their affliction. You will be made into a pastor. A pastor for Christians, a pastor for non-Christians. And what do you call a pastor for non-Christians? I call them an evangelist, right? Through those dark times, we learn of the great shepherd. Through those dark times, the watching world looks and sees a hope that is in us, that is different. And listen, I don't expect your words in that situation to be polished, to be impressive. My words in those situations are not polished, they are not impressive. But if Jesus is in you, he will come out of you in your feeble and faltering words, and you'll be able to put words authentically to your hope in Jesus. And those words will have more of an impact than any polished communication you can imagine. 1 Peter 3.15 is not about learning a whole bunch of philosophical arguments, and you've got them on a hair trigger so that someone asks you the question. You say, I know! You know, shoot them down with your knowledge. No, it's, it's, you've learned to suffer well and to cling to Christ. And when asked, you're ready to say, it's Jesus. I'll finish with this. I, I used to be uh, involved in a, a group called Christians in Sport in the UK and, and um, uh, was involved in a cricket team and uh, constantly wanting to be a good witness in the cricket team. And I, but I just remember we used to meet up quite a lot um, different cricketers who were trying to inspire one another for being witnesses in the cricket team. And I don't think it was ever said from the front, but it was kind of 
the impression that I got as I drove home from every meeting, the impression that I got was to be a great witness in the cricket team, you had to take five wickets, you had to score 100 runs, you had to be the life and soul of the dressing room, you had to be in the bar until late at night telling cracking mother-in-law gags, and you're a Christian. And the, the kind of the goal was for someone to look on you and to say, Glenn, you're a really impressive human being. What a specimen you are. What's your secret, Glenn? And then for me to say, well, it's not all me. Let me tell you about Jesus. And you, you kind of, you get this weird mythology in your head that this is what evangelism looks like, that you, you become the really, really impressive person that everyone wants to be like. And then they say, what's your secret? And you say, church, <laughs> as though anyone's going to buy that one, you know. But that was, the, that was the understanding I had of evangelism. Just be really, really impressive and a Christian, and then people will flock to Jesus. And then I met a wonderful Christian cricketer called Henry Alonga, uh, a Zimbabwean cricketer, played for the, for the national team. He was a very fast bowler. He was as fast as Brett Lee, as fast as Shoaib Akhtar back in the 90s. Very erratic with it, but he was very, very fast. And uh, he was an incredibly impressive individual, uh, he took a stand against Robert Mugabe in the 2003 World Cup. He wore a black armband to protest the death of democracy under Robert Mugabe, right? So he was, he was this principled guy. He was incredibly good-looking, incredibly talented. He was a singer. He was operatically trained. He has had number one singles in Zimbabwe, right? This guy would have been the poster boy for Christians in sport. He was, he was like, this is, this is what you do, right? So I was expecting this guy to be really leading the way in this kind of impressive evangelism. And then I got to meet Henry Alonga, and he really torpedoed everything I'd ever thought about evangelism. Because I said, what was, it, was it, what was it like being an evangelist in your cricket team? And he, and he said, oh, I was hated. Like, really? But you, you, you won Zimbabwe all these games? And he said, oh, yeah, but I was rocking the boat massively. We were getting death threats because I was protesting against Mugabe, and nobody liked that. And he said, like... I was handing out gospel tracts to people, little leaflets explaining the Christian faith to people. Nobody wanted to hear that. I was hated. I, I sat by myself most times in that dressing room. I was like, oh, sounds like an alien and a stranger, doesn't he? He said, but yeah, the thing is, whenever any of their, their girlfriends dumped them or if their form dipped and they're about to get cut from the team, or they got an injury that would end their career, he said, then I was the person they spoke to. Then they would sidle up to me and say, Henry, can we go for a drink? And he said, then he led loads of people to Christ. Incredibly. He, wasn't, he was not popular at all. And he was not the guy in the dressing room till late at night telling cracking mother-in-law gags. He was not that guy. Because who wants to talk to that guy when life goes badly, right? Do you want to talk to the alpha type personality when life goes badly? No, and, and so ever since then, I've realized, look, the goal in evangelism is, is really be the guy your friends will trust when they are walking through the valley of the shadow. Be the guy your friends will sidle up to, maybe silently, maybe ashamedly. Be that person that they can trust when life goes badly. And then you'll be able to say, listen, I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. And then you're doing the work of witness. Because evangelism is just pastoring non-Christians.
Pastoral care is just evangelizing Christians. Should we bow our heads? Let me, let me pray for us all. Father, we love Jesus. We are so glad for Jesus. We are so glad that we have a shepherd for the darkest valley. And I pray for, for those who might be really feeling the depths of the valley of the shadow right now. I pray that they would know the kindness, the love, the grace, and the truth of Jesus right now leading them. And I pray for all of us that we would learn how Christ pastors us, that we might pastor others. And Lord, please may it be the case that our friends look on. May they see a different hope in us. And will you give us that boldness to put words to that hope, to go public, to speak of your son, because we love him. In his name we pray. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.